We're looking at Jacob's life this month. We'll get into Joseph's life next month, the gospel according to this patriarch and his son. We're just looking at Old Testament biographical sketches here and looking at them to see how the, the grace of God works for us. And although we don't chart character growth in Jacob, which is not the point of his story, the grace of God was nonetheless lavished on him. And that is the point of Jacob's story. But it was grace that also wounds. Grace saves, grace heals, but grace also wounds. We talked a little bit about how last week in chapter 27, how this Abrahamic blessing, what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, it goes to Isaac, and then Isaac thinks it's going to go to Esau, but it actually goes to Jacob, and that's painful for Isaac, and it's certainly painful for Esau, but it's also painful for Jacob in its ways as his life unfolded from chapter 27 where we were last week because as chapter 28 opens we find this unbelievably graced man being sent away from home which he didn't want verse 21 in our passage makes that plain he, he says in his vow I, I hope to go home again but Esau wanted to kill him how better for Esau to get back his birthright by killing his brother so his brother couldn't get it. If his brother dies, then, then it all has to come to him. So he's, he's nursing this grudge and Isaac sends Jacob to Rebekah's side of the family and Isaac sends Jacob out reiterating the blessing because the blessing was set. But Jacob had to make this lonely journey where we pick up the text. He's making this very lonely journey by himself between the home he knew and wanted to be in and Rebecca's people, his mother. It was a journey, but it was not a climb. And I'll talk about why not as we go along. But this dream of this ladder, it was punctuation in the form of an exclamation point from God himself. Why is the punctuation needed? Why an exclamation point? Well, look again at the last uh, few verses here, uh, beginning in verse 20 when he says, uh, if God will be with me, if, he makes a vow, but he makes it conditional. If God will be with me, keep me in this way that I go. Give me bread to eat, clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then, if, then, if God will do this, then the Lord shall be my God. And the rest of it there in verse 22. He puts the vow in conditional form. If God will be with me, then I, I will serve him. But you recall from last week, hopefully in, in chapter 27, around verse 33, where Isaac says, son, God's going to be with you. Uh, this is uh, absolutely unalterable. Through Jacob, all the families of the earth will be blessed, including you and me right here this morning in this place. In the dream, God says the same thing. This is set. His father says it, his heavenly father says it, but Jacob says, verses 20 through 22, okay, if, if God does it, then, then I'll, I'll respond. With this text before us, I want us to consider how grace works for us from two angles today. First, how grace works for us in bringing us in on something that is always bigger than ourselves. And second, how grace works for us, even though we remain always strangers to grace. 
These will be our two points. How grace works for us by bringing us in on something bigger than ourselves and we're always strangers to grace nevertheless. So first, how grace works for us in bringing us in on something bigger than ourselves. Look again at verse 14 where God is saying to him through this dream, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Verse 14, you shall spread abroad every direction. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, which is an echo of Genesis 12. If you ever wanna go back and read what God said to Abraham, it's being echoed, it's being reiterated. It's, it's, it's having an exclamation point put on it here for Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Now. What did I tell you about him last week by way of introduction? That Jacob is a very self-absorbed guy. Grace comes to one such as him. We're in the first book of the Bible. This is a revelation. We sort of get accustomed to the idea, but this is a scandal. He outmaneuvered Esau for his father's blessing, mainly out of a personal desire to just do better for himself. Jacob was ambitious that way. From birth, he wanted pole position. Remember, he came out with his uh, hand on his brother's heel. But in this dream, he hears directly from God that what God brought him in on was a lot bigger than his own ambition could even ask, imagine, or contain. Do you really know? Do we really know what we've been brought in on? You experience the world as the theater of God's grace working. At the end, we'll see that was the only show in town. That was what life was about, the working out of the grace of God through everything. You may remember if you took English literature classes somewhere, you probably encountered a Gerald Manley Hopkins poem or two along the way, and his most famous one probably contains the line. It starts with the line, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Hopkins goes on in that poem to say that though the world will flame out, here's his words, and though the world is smeared with toil and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell, nonetheless... This world is the only place in the universe, so far as we know, the SETI, uh, you know, satellites are still looking. (laughs) So far as we know, this is the only place in everything that exists in which God is brooding, in Gerald Manley Hopkins' words, warmly over this place, meaning God generously gets his grace to someone from everyone everywhere here. This dream is, in its own way, it's, it's world-affirming. Now, this ladder in it, verse 12, you see the, the ladder. You, you should think of this less like a ladder that you have in your garage and more like, okay, let's just get it out of the way, a stairway to heaven, all right? Uh, you can think of the Wayne's World scene, if you like, uh, you know, where he's denied playing uh, uh, stairway to heaven in the guitar store. You've seen that movie, right? You know that movie. Don't act like you haven't. Um, It's more like terraced steps, okay? We've gotten that out of our system. It's not really a ladder. We'll call it a ladder. The text calls it a ladder, but it's it's more like terraced steps that, that go up, up, up from the earth, note the location, 
up into the abode of God, the Lord speaking at the top of it. God comes to Jacob in this dream in the middle of his lonely journey from the home he's known to the home he's going to know, his mother's people. But he doesn't give him the ladder for Jacob to climb it. And this is instructive. This is a very simple lesson about how the God, the, the God of grace works and how his grace works. Note these steps are set on the earth, according to verse 12. Why is that key? The ladder doesn't originate here. What all religions have in common, we've got to find our way to God. We've got to climb to make. Uh, nor are we Gnostics. Uh, the ancient heresy of Gnosticism had this sort of antiseptic regard for matter and things material. The ladder from heaven touches earth. If earth was bad, if human flesh was bad, God wouldn't have taken on both in the incarnation of Jesus. The world is fallen, but the world is the grounds, the theater for God's grace working. And God's grace works according to this blessing given by God to Abraham, then to Isaac, and now to Jacob, who is hearing, verse 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Verse 14 says, all the families of the earth bless through you. Verse 15, I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done everything that I have promised you. And, that's, and the sense of that is not, and then I'll leave you. The sense of that is, then your life will be over. I'm going with you to the end. God wasn't going anywhere. Though God does take us places, namely he takes us on journeys of faith, if you want to call it that, sure. But what's the promise? I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you, verse 15. It involved land and descendants. We talked about that last week. There's some technical aspects to the promise, but the promise is ultimately about grace multiplied the world over through this man's line, through whom Jesus comes. And this is always something that's going to be bigger than ourselves. See, our temptation, my temptation, is to shrink grace down to manage God. But look, look at what's happening here as he gets this dream. Even as Jacob sleeps, he's being awakened to who God will be for him. And this is huge. God communicates his faithfulness to a lying cheat of a man, and I hope that encourages you this morning. Because, see, I want to manage God. I, I want to shrink down the application of grace. I want to, in my piety, in my legalism, in my moralism, in my Pharisaism, I want to say grace can't be shown to someone self-absorbed like Jacob. Can it? Maybe not if it's my grace, but God's grace is not my grace. God's grace is always bigger than mine. And he gives it to whom he wills. You see in the dream, <clears throat> verse 12, angels of God are ascending and descending on these steps. Up and down they go. But it's not Jacob. There's no climb for Jacob. The sense of this is not, here's a ladder, climb up here to me if you can, and I will accept you. In fact, it's, it's sort of the reverse of Babel. You get Babel over in Genesis chapter 11. We'll build this 
terraced step structure up to God. God says, I'm going to come down. This is how God's grace works. And angels, the reason angels are going up and down is it has to do with the abode of God and they always see the face of God, but also angels are messengers throughout the Bible and they, they come bearing witness to what God does. And sometimes God himself showed up in person with a message. Do you remember a guy in your New Testament named Nathaniel? He became one of Jesus' disciples. He's the guy who made fun of Jesus' hometown, Nazareth. Anything good come from Nazareth? (laughs) When Jesus first met him, he said to Nathanael, if if you follow me, do you know what you're going to see? You're going to see angels ascending and descending on me. What an introduction. Because what he's saying to Nathanael in that moment, you remember Jacob's dream? Our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remember the dream that he had and the Lord God who spoke to him? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Guess what? The one standing before you, whose hometown you just mocked. I'm him. That was me talking to Jacob. All the families of the earth are blessed through me, his descendant. I'm here. We're brought on in something, we're brought on in on something bigger than ourselves, but the bigness that we're brought in on, it's not the kind of bigness you get lost in, the bigness of yawning space. The whole point of the dream is to say God is going to close the distance between humanity and himself, and he's going to do it himself. Jesus is already in view here, and the Bible's not 28 chapters old. Jesus is in view in the very beginning, but he's in view here because the whole book, not just Genesis, but Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through Revelation is a story about him. Who did Jacob see at the top of the ladder? Who did he hear speaking to him? The Lord Jesus himself. Jacob saw him at the top, but you and I have met him after the descent. He came down. God comes down so that we will rise to him. Jacob is in the midst of a journey, but it's not a climb because that's religion. Religion says, get to know God if you can. Try to give God the best you've got. No, your best is never good enough. Not when Jesus is the standard. And so the gospel is, God comes to you with his best, and even though we love this, we're grateful for this, we value this incredibly, we are also always strangers to it. We're always strangers to grace, even though we know God's grace works for us. We've heard the old, old story. Every week we hear it. This is our second consideration of two. We're always strangers to grace. Where do you see this? This trust but verify response that Jacob gives in verse 20 through verse 22, this conditional vow, which I don't poke at anymore like I used to because there is a sense in which I I guess I thought when I first became a Christian for many years afterwards that, you know, belief is just this rock solid thing that you just 
put your poles uh, down deep into the soil, and there it is. Back at this point in life, I believed and I never looked back. And while there is some sense to that, belief is also believing. It's continuing, ongoing. There's a sense in which belief is perpetually present tense. We start at a moment in the past, we do drive some stakes in the ground, and we believe for the first time, but then we keep believing. And, and, and part of why we keep believing is because we can't believe how good God is to us in His grace. Jacob is self-absorbed. Yes, he is. But, you know, if we parse that a little bit, there's ways to be self-absorbed. It's a continuum of self-absorption. Why he was distrustful, why he was leery, why he would make a conditional vow. If all this is true, what my dad's telling me, what you've just told me, Lord, in the dream, then okay, I'm in. But I got to see some things happen. And God works with him in this. Because Jacob's was the self-absorption of someone who defaults to thinking he's really on his own in the world and thereby he has to look out for himself. Does that sound familiar? Is that anyone in here? Is that you? He believed he had to stay guarded at every turn, even though his father said, God will look out for you. And even though God says in the dream, I am looking out for you, and I'm going to do for you what I say, every word of it. But Jacob hedges on the dream, even as he builds an altar afterwards and worships. Now, for modern people, putting this now into our context, we look at a dream and we say, well, you know, I don't want to put a lot of stock in dreams anyway. How much stock do you put in dreams? Dreams are open to interpretation. Most of the time, if we have one that, you know, the next day we say, that was a wild dream I had last night. And then we wonder, what did I eat the day before? You know, we don't think about divine communication. So even giving benefit of the doubt, if an if a entirely modern, postmodern reader looks at this and says, well, I can't put a lot of stock in dreams, you know, it's no proof of anything that you had a dream. But even if you gave, if you're that kind of, of, of listener to this story and you say, well, all right, I'll give benefit of the doubt that he really heard from God this way, we read his response in verses 20 through 22 is, is entirely reasonable. I mean, it was a dream after all. Sure, he's going to hedge on it. But there's a great difference between how things happened back then and, and now for us in that dreams were a recognized communication from God. And Jacob knows God has spoken to him. There's no doubt about it. There's no question as to its meaning. It's the application of it this man struggled with. Can God really be this good to me? Has he got the right one? Martin Luther is quoted as saying what he struggled with throughout his life was two questions. Is God good and is God good to me? This exclamation point on grace for Jacob in the form of the dream and God speaking to him, yes, this is God, Jacob. I am this good to you. I will be, I am, I have been since you, even before you knew it. And Jacob is completely humbled by this. Look at what he says in the text. How awesome is this place? 
and he builds an altar and he worships. But it's possible to be in awe and still be leery and distrustful of God. To continue to think, uh, well, that may be so good to hear, but I, I still, I'm really on my own in this world and I've still got to make my own way. To be guarded, even with God, it's possible to be on a first name basis with grace and still be a stranger to it. You know, we tend to assign no fault to a person who responds humbly. But the humble can find it hard to receive from God. The humble can find it hard to take God at His word. Grace does humble us, but humility doesn't mean you've got the gospel down pat. In Jacob's dealings with Laban to come, oh, Laban, he's a piece of work. His mother's brother, his future father-in-law. Laban will cheat Jacob. In fact, the first month that he's with him, he has Jacob work for him for no pay. But Jacob never says, it's remarkable, he never says to Laban, don't, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've seen of God? That's maybe the closest we'll come to character development in Jacob. The cheater, when, cheater, when, when cheated, doesn't retaliate at first. <laughs> uh, Jacob is going to outshrewd Laban eventually. But here in chapter 28, in the midst of a lonely journey, he's beginning to come to terms with what it means. He's just beginning to come to terms with what it means to be a graced man, a man that God delights to bless even though there was nothing about Jacob before the blessing, there was nothing during it, and there was nothing afterwards that made him worthy. Nothing. Do you know what a grace statement it is for God to identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's incredible. But this is the point. Isn't this why grace comes to Jacob and to you and to me, there's nothing about us that should make God want to go to the effort. But he does. There's a story that Edith Schaefer, the wife of Francis Schaefer, was a famous apologist. If you don't know the name, he was somebody in the 70s uh, and 80s, in particular 60s before that, who uh, had a chalet in Switzerland. And, and kids would hi uh, be backpacking across Europe and and they would find the Schaefers, and Edith was known for her hospitality, and Francis was known for uh, being a, a, a thinker and, and one who could process a lot of philosophy with, with kids that were uh, looking for something to believe. Edith Schaefer has a book called The Hidden Art of Homemaking. Some of you have, have uh, probably read it. And it, and it draws a particular point of how grace works out for us very memorably she writes, this is early in their, in their marriage, uh, their, their children were very small, and, and she writes about having lived in this place where the railroad tracks, not far from her home, they would bring drifters into town, and they would seemingly always find her back door. And these disheveled uh, men, smelly, ragged, would come knocking on her door, and they would ask, would you have a cup of coffee? you could spare or even a piece of bread for me. Wait a minute, I'd reply. Just sit down there. I'll, I'll fix you something. It was too dangerous to invite a stranger in alone with small children as I was, but 
it would have been wrong to send him away. I would get out a tray, put the kettle on, and look in the fridge for some leftover soup. Into a small pan would go the soup with the gas on under it. I would cut bread, enough for two big sandwiches, not too thin, he'll be hungry, and wonder what sort of home he had when he was a little boy, and, and wonder who he is. Maybe I have an angel in disguise outside. I would butter the bread, cut a lovely big tomato and even slices and pepper them, place them on the bread and then decide to add bacon. I would sizzle one slice to fold over the tomato and add two leaves of lettuce. For a second sandwich, I'd prepare him my own favorite. Walnut halves stuck into the butter, salted on one slice and then the second piece of buttered bread placed on top. A diagonal cut through the first sandwich showed red tomato and green lettuce attractively displayed in the slash. The walnuts crunched as the knife went diagonally through the second sandwich, alternating these four triangles on a lovely dinner plate came next with pickle trim beside one and parsley on the other. Now for the steaming hot soup left over from our lunch, I would put a good bowl of this on the tray and the children would help me fix a tiny bouquet of flowers nested in ivy leaf. What'll he think of this, mommy? Priscilla would ask. Well, perhaps he'll remember something in his past, I said. Perhaps he had a very nice home once where he had meals prepared for him. Anyway, he'll stop and think, and we'll give him this little gospel of John to read while he's eating. He can take it away with him, and who knows? Perhaps he'll do a lot of thinking and one day believe. Anyway, he may realize we care something about him as a person, and that's important. Priscilla would hold the screen door open as I took it out and watch his surprised face as he saw the tray. For me, he would say, is that for me? There is nothing about us that should make God want to go to the effort that, that being gracious to us requires him to go to, but he does go to the effort. I don't know how you feel about communion, but that's how I feel about it. For me? Is this for me? Your body torn? Your blood poured out? I'm not trying to get you to think uh, 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 from a certain angle about yourself. I, that's what manipulators do. I'm, I'm telling you the truth of who we are before God. That nothing about us should make God want to go to any effort for us but he does, and he does so beautifully, even more beautifully than Edith Schaefer could for drifters who approached her house because we actually get to go in. He has no fear of us. We actually get a seat at his table. We get more than that. We get new clothes. We get an inheritance. We're co-heirs with Christ, the one at the top of the ladder. He makes us his own. He brings us in never to send us away from himself. We're his, we're his for good. I need that gospel today. You do as well. We've even declared it and sang it. His love endures forever. His love never gives up. It never runs out on me. As we go to communion now, let's thank him. Father, we see in Jacob a man in need of grace, but he couldn't earn it. 
It broke in on his life against his will. It wounded even as it blessed him. And Father, it does the same to us. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us to his own way. We have drifted. We have done what is right in our own eyes and we have liked it until we didn't. And only then it was because some consequence emerged that we couldn't do anything about. Try as we might to cover ourselves. We are bare before you. All our needs are known. And you do more for us than bring us out stale coffee and a piece of bread. You decorate a table for us. You prepare that, even in the presence of our enemies. And our cup runs over. Our attempt at communion, Lord, is feeble. It's a little snack cracker that we wouldn't even eat beyond this moment and a little swig of juice. But in its own way, that's fitting in that it, uh, it's never enough. We can't enjoy anything here enough. We are made for another place. We are made for the renewal of all things. And so when we take this little bite, it is to make us long for more in your presence that we get when we're glorified and our salvation is complete. So Lord, as we go into communion now, we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are enough for us. There's nothing to be added. There is no more attached to you except what we anticipate when our faith is sight. And we are finally freely in your presence as the people that you intended for us to be all along. And we'll thank you for your grace doing that because that's all we've got in the end, but it's all we had in the beginning, and it's really all we have all the way through. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.